Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. It was a huge case for Qualcomm. Apple and Qualcomm have been in a dispute uh, for months, if not years, over patents of Qualcomm's. The suit was dropped after a settlement uh, came into place. Apple paid some undisclosed amount to Qualcomm. Qualcomm shares absolutely surging. Here to explain the whole situation to us is Anand Srinivasan. He's senior semiconductor and hardware analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. So Anand, let's just set this up with what was at the heart of this legal dispute. So uh, if we step back and look at the technologies that Qualcomm has invented and popularized, commercialized over the last uh, decade plus, this is basically the engine of the phone that allows it to communicate very effectively over cellular networks. They invented this technology, they commercialized this technology, both on the device side as well as the infrastructure side. They monetize it predominantly through a chip in the device and through handset royalties. They believe that they have um, uh, the best chip in the business, but that their technologies uh, are encompassed in more than just the chip. So how do they monetize that? They say to every handset maker, well, you're using my technology, whether you use my chip or not, so you gotta pay me a piece of that action. So for every smartphone sold in the world, they get a piece of that pie. And in addition to that, if the smartphone so happens to use their cellular chip, they monetize that as well. So enter several handset makers over the past decade have sued Qualcomm to try and reduce the rate to make sure to minimize the um, the sort of the expanding nature of their IP technology so that they can pay the least amount possible to Qualcomm. Right? Apple has had a problem with that and expanded it to a philosophical problem saying, well, guess what? I'm not going to use your chips anymore. I'm going to go to Intel and I do not believe your intellectual property is that valuable, I'm not going to pay you for your intellectual property. So since uh, late 2016, early 2017, they stopped or reduced their dependence on Qualcomm chips and stopped paying the um, uh, royalties for their intellectual property. Um, so this settlement says many, many things. Number one, that Qualcomm's intellectual property is valid and that it is um, applicable to more than just the chip. And the, and the most important handset maker has now said that. Number two, it uh, clearly controls the calendar for 5G development, puts it back in Apple's control, doesn't sort of um, make them depend on a second tier provider such as Intel, which is lagging in cellular development, and gives them back control so they can launch the 5G iPhone when they're ready. So... It's interesting. So I get, you know, Qualcomm stock, this is great for Qualcomm. Their stock's up 35%, including today, over the past two, two days. Just amazing. I'm actually a little surprised that Apple hasn't risen more on this news, maybe by just simply saying, gee, now Apple has a clearer path to develop their I, you know, their 5G iPhone. What's going on on the Apple side of the So, equation? So that's a great point, right? One is the handset business is becoming rather blasé. Right. So the question is, are you now willing to pay a thousand dollars phone, twelve hundred dollars a phone? The Qualcomm impact of that might be de minimis. So, but now, are you going to go from two hundred seventeen million units that you shipped in fiscal eighteen to two fifty to three hundred just because there's a new five G technology? 
Um, and the likelihood of that is low. The handset market is slowing. So, and Apple's bread is more buttered on the services side where it's trying to expand its revenue footprint. Right. Uh, Intel. Intel was the big surprise to me. So, mm-hmm. Intel would be a loser on the face of it, right? Because Apple had been turning to Intel for this wireless capacity, the cellular uh, connectivity and, and hardware. Now they're going to go back to Qualcomm, and you would think that would be a negative for Intel, right? But no, the shares are up by more than 3%. What gives? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, Semi's, uh, Semi's working double derivative. It's, uh, it, look, this has been a bad business for Intel. Right, so the fact that they wanted to get into this business, um, that they want to expand their uh, silicon footprint from more than just uh, processors to memory to connectivity to other technologies in other devices. That's been Intel's holy grail. It's not been good at that, right? They've been good at uh, microprocessors across PCs, across servers, and they're slowly expanding their footprint in the data centers in, um, in storage and in networking. But when it comes to low power devices, consumer devices, um, on the connectivity side, on the processing side, their presence is de minimis and their product portfolio is to be quite honest, weak, right? So, and this, Apple was their only major customer, if not their only customer, and they were barely breaking even in this business, applying to Apple. So the fact that they've gotten out of this business allows them to improve their profits and redirect. We wrote that this uh, re-engineering was imminent. We just didn't think it was two hours imminent. Um, <laughs> so, um, and they've shut down the business. They're going to keep their infrastructure side of their, uh, their development, but they're losing, they're punting on the handset side, which I think is a very, very smart move. Lisa, we are so lucky we have Anand Srinivas in here because you know, this all the stuff 100%. that's going on in tech is just the, the chips, the phones, the... All the litigation is just extraordinary. And it's huge business. And yeah. honestly, I love this idea that Intel lost and yet they and yet won the because the up. shareholders were like, you guys, why were you in that business to begin with? It was a money loser. Yep. Second time around. Too. Yeah, exactly. Anish Srinivasan, Senior Semiconductor and Hardware Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Well, spring is here, which means it is home buying season. To get an update on the residential real estate market, return to Doug Duncan, Senior Vice President, Chief Economist for Fannie Mae, based in Washington, D.C., but joining us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Doug, welcome. So again, interest rates are down. Does that mean that it is a hot real estate market? Uh, Good morning. Uh, Not hot. Uh, In fact, we think in our theme for this year, we say the economy is slowing, the Fed slowed, and housing plateaued. So what that means is we think 2019 total sales will look very much like 2018 total sales. So the peak this cycle will have been 2017. But we're getting a little comeback because rates have come back down. So it's going to be stronger later in the year than it's been at the beginning of the year. So the peak will be 2017. So can you fast forward for us, what will the trough look like? Well, one of the uh, salvations of supply being constrained at the entry level is let's suppose we go into a recession we're building 200,000 less units than we should be today so if, if price on if, the starter side on the starter side that's right and boomers are not moving so the existing home supply adjusted for population is at 30-year lows that's your supply problem in a recession rates are going to come down 
house prices are going to slow. If unemployment doesn't go beyond 7 7.5% in a mild recession, housing is the cushion for that and comes out the other side looking good. So, Duncan, you said that the builders aren't building as many starter homes maybe as the market demands. Is that because millennials aren't buying homes and they're renting longer? They're living in their parents' basements? Well, there's still a lot of them living in their parents' basement. That's housing to come. But for the last three years, they've been the driver of the demand curve. The problem is they're entry-level borrowers. And since the boomers are not moving, those existing homes aren't available on the supply. And builders are having a hard time building profitably at the entry level because of the adjustments uh, regulatorily in in the market. So builders have not had a hard time building for the upper ends of the market. Mm-hmm. So what's the trough going to look like uh, for the middle to upper segments? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. We would expect uh, already we're seeing the upper end slow all across the country. And we, we tend to look at a market by dividing each market into thirds. If No matter what market you look at, the top third is either flat or falling. The middle third is increasing, but not rapidly. What what are we talking about in terms of price points for these thirds? Okay, let's talk about Atlanta, for example. In the in the bottom third, you're probably talking two fifty and below. Middle third, maybe I'm I'm guessing I don't have the numbers in front of me. Two fifty to five fifty or six hundred, something like that, and then above. That top piece. Uh, only appreciated about 4% last year. The middle piece, about 65 the bottom 12%. That's so, the same story all yep. across the country. How about certain certain regions? I remember coming, you know, going into the financial crisis when the housing bubble burst. Boy, there were some markets that were just ugly, whether it's, you know, Phoenix or <clears throat> Vegas or the South Florida and, th- and things like that. Are, do we have any regional pockets of bubbles that you're seeing out there in the marketplace? Well, it's difficult to call something a bubble when you have strong demand and no supply. That was the opposite for the crisis. We had overbuilding, there were speculators were flipping houses, there wasn't the sustainable demand. Are, are you seeing that speculation come in? We're not. No. There's, in some markets, there are investors who are a piece of that market, but it's oversold in terms of the share of those investors. Although there, has been, uh, there have been pockets of overbuilding, no? There, yeah, uh, we would we would agree that um, that the markets are saturated in a few places, but like not overbuilt. Probably Midwest, where you're not seeing as strong a growth on the on the employment side as you're seeing some of the coastal spaces. Uh, just to give you an example, how you you need to differentiate between markets. I was here uh, about a month ago and uh, spoke with a young lady. I was sitting having a bite to eat. She sat down. I asked. Are you in town for business? She said, yes. I said, where from? She said, San Jose. I said, okay, I'm in housing. I want to hear about San Jose. So I said, do you mind? I'll be getting real personal. I said, can I ask how much money you make? She said, uh, wow, and this- I'm impressed. <laughs> she said, yeah. She said, I make 250000 I said, are you married? She said, oh, no, boy. but I'm engaged. I said, how much does your fiance make? Does this strategy work for you? Yeah, I was <laughs> about to say. Yeah, I'm an economist. People expect this kind of stuff, do right? Do they? Right. You, can, you can make that excuse. Go up to someone. How much do you make? I'm an economist. They, you should expect this. Go on. What is so, so go on. So he, he also makes 250000 They work for Salesforce. That's 500000 in San Jose, a starter home is one and a quarter to one and a half million. The rule of thumb in housing is you can afford a house three times your annual income. 
That $150 million and a half house is three times their annual income. In San Jose, that makes sense from a supply-demand perspective. That would not make sense in Indianapolis. Right. So that's why we, we look at prices in 110 different markets because it's a diverse country. Doug Duncan, one of the bravest men I've ever met in my entire <laughs> life, who can go up to a woman that he just sees sitting there having her lunch and say, how much money do you make? Are you married? Do you plan to buy a home? It's data. It's data. How's your, how's your, how's your medical history? Doug Duncan, yeah. chief economist at Fannie Mae, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. Netflix shares are little changed after reporting earnings after the bell yesterday. And I got to say, Paul, I am left wondering, was this a good earnings report or a bad earnings report? To answer that question, we have Tuna Amobi. He is CFRA Research's media and entertainment analyst joining us by phone. Tuna, so give us a sense. What's your take on this? Was, it good, was this good or bad for Netflix? Well, I'd say the, um, the Q1 numbers are actually better than expected, both on the revenue growth and the EPS headline number. Uh, the one thing that we were taken aback, as was most investors, is actually the Q2 guidance, which came in lighter than expected, about 5 million uh, subscribers. Um, but I would point out that Q2 is a seasonally slow quarter, and um, the end of the year, we still expect the Netflix subscriber addition to, uh, to be a record number. So, Tuna, clearly the big uh, issue for Netflix, you know, has been uh, competition and the rising level of competition. And, and as I know you well know, Disney uh, unveiled its streaming plus, the Disney plus streaming service last week. What is your view of the competitive landscape for Netflix, given the, uh, you know, entrance of Disney and some of the other big media players? Uh, thanks for the question, Paul. So, I mean, uh, I think this year probably will be the most um, kind of, uh, you know, what I'd say, intensely competitive year yet for the streaming landscape. Um, you know, just a large part of which is due to the uh, unveiling of the details of the of the Disney Plus offering. Uh, what's pretty clear is that with Apple and Warner Media and Comcast all also writing their own offerings, uh, we do expect that um, there is going to be, um, you, know, the, you know, kind of a ratcheted level of competition. Uh, also, considering Disney's um, aggressive pricing for its product at $6.99. Um, but I, I think um, what worries us is, is a little bit uh, the likelihood of price competition as the uh, space gets more and more crowded. Um, on the positive note, we think we're still in the relatively early innings, so there should be several uh, potential winners. Let's go over the good points and the bad points point by point. So some of the good points, uh, they did post improving margins and they are spending a little bit less on content. Can you put those particular aspects uh, into perspective for us as far as how important those positive attributes of the earnings statement were? Right. So they came in at 10.2% operating margins, which was, uh, you know, nevertheless um, above expectations. They have reaffirmed their outlook for about 13% uh, operating margins this year, uh, which would be 300 basis points expansion. Uh, but what's happening is that, you know, this year they should actually ratchet up their content spending. They're dialing back a little bit on the marketing side, um, but we do expect that, um, you know, the, the margin expansion is going to be driven by, 
uh, you know, subscriber growth, a large part of which is coming from international markets. So as long as they can continue to grow their top line over and above their content and marketing expenses, uh, that's what's going to drive the underlying margin expansion uh, projected for this year. Now, on a cash basis, I think we know that they're going to be uh, another cash burn north of $3.5 billion this year, uh, which over the next few years should improve successively. And we're looking for about a three-year inflection point when they should be self-funding and be able to generate po- positive free cash flow, at which point I think Street is going to take a much more traditional approach to valuation. Yeah, so Tun, I'm glad you you brought up the the negative free cash flow of uh, I guess more than 3.5 billion this year, and I guess if you look on the Bloomberg terminal, uh, the street's kind of looking for a free cash flow positive, maybe by 2021 or 2022, something like that. But in a rising competitive world, one could argue, I guess a, a bear case would be whatever you guys are penciling in for programming investments, Netflix has got to spend more because look who's coming. How do you view that? Uh, that's a great point, Paul. And and there's really no uh, way out of uh, you know spending a lot more. Uh, and in the case of Netflix, I think they've made the point that you know they've got to ramp up their original slate even more, not just on the television series, but also on the uh, feature side. And that's why you see them uh, you know kind of uh, getting ready for um, you know Disney and others pulling off their content as more and more of these um, providers kind of launch their own offerings. But, um, you know, I do believe that there is a, a tremendous appetite out there uh, for uh, quality content, and that's why you see a lot of these companies ratcheting up, you know, the levels of their spending. And in the case of Netflix, they've been able to pretty much justify that they're spending in the context of growth in viewing hours, also a return investment. We're, we're speaking with Tuna Amobi, CFRA Research's media and entertainment analyst. Tuna, I don't know how many people you know who share Netflix accounts, but I know a lot of people. One oh, Netflix boy. account. What kind of crowd do you run with? <laughs> I, I run with a pretty rogue group. Okay. I mean, honestly, I, I just I hear about it all the time from people who are not in my very, very assiduous group of, of people, friends. <laughs> but Tuna, do they address or have they addressed this at all? The fact that one subscription supplies maybe 15 people in some cases with uh, Netflix content? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think they've come to live with the fact that password sharing is, is uh, somehow inevitable. And, um, you know, I think what they've done is kind of to somewhat kind of um, build in some price uh, increase in the model, um, partly to mitigate some of that. I think we just saw that this quarter um, but to the extent that, um, you know, password sharing, it, it, I don't think it's frankly an uh, overriding concern for them at this point because um, when you look at the uh, subscriber trends and, and, um, and revenue growth, that they're just still north of 20%. And remember, um, you know, we're talking about um, rising operating leverage. So all indicators point to us that this isn't um, an overriding concern. So, so Tuna, I know you also cover the Walt Disney Company and have a strong buy on that stock. What is your take on Disney Plus? Do you think that's a, a product that can really compete against Netflix and some of the other players in the market? Uh, I, I do believe Disney Plus is uh, going to give Netflix a very good run for its money. Um, we were kind of uh, watching the presentation like everyone else and came away quite impressed. I think the, the company accomplished a mission, which is, pretty much to uh, position, you know, kind of convey, uh, you know, Disney Plus as a very formidable platform and um, and the pricing was certainly aggressive. Uh, So I do believe that, um, you know, as we kind of look out in terms of the ramp up of the slate in Disney Plus, 
Um, I think you have another uh, viable and potentially groundbreaking um, you know, uh, a player here. We've never seen a major studio like Disney decide to go that route. So this is something that's going to be pretty closely watched. And uh, But having said that, I think, as I alluded to earlier, it's still a growing pie. And I don't see uh, that being a major uh, near-term concern for Netflix, as Reed Hist is also uh, alluded right. to on the call. Great. Tuna Moby, thank you so much for your thoughts on Netflix and Disney and the whole streaming business. Tuna is a media and entertainment analyst for CFRA Research based in New York City, joining us on the phone. Uh, it's interesting. You, th you take a look at those Netflix numbers, and again, the uh, the stock is kind of unchanged today as investors try to balance um, kind of some of the subscriber growth that came in a little bit lighter than expected for the second quarter, but really try to think about where the streaming business is going long term as it gets more crowded. It's not just Netflix. Now we've got some of the big Hollywood studios coming into the business. Well, it looks like the next hot tech IPO is about to hit the market. Pinterest is going to be priced after the close tonight. It's being reported. And the Wall Street Journal is also reporting that the company is likely to price its shares above the proposed range of 15 to $17 per share. To get the latest on this new tech IPO, we turn to Jitender Waral. He is a senior analyst covering internet and consumer products companies for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's joining us from the Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Hey, Paul. Hey, Jitender, thanks for joining us. So, you know, we've got Facebook, we've got Snap, we've got Twitter. Where does Pinterest fit into the scheme here of social media companies? Yeah, interestingly, they're not pitching themselves as the next Facebook or, or, or the next uh, big social media platform. They're sort of pivoting to, you know, their strengths, which is a good thing. So, you know, the way Pinterest is really positioned, Paul, here is it is a product discovery platform for the undecided buyer. So if you look at the users of the platforms, more than 70% of them actually have some sort of purchase interest uh, and purchase intent. And if you look at the searches that they're doing, most of these searches are unbranded, so they don't know what they're what they want to buy, what brand they want to go after. So when you sort of marry the demand that we are seeing in e-commerce advertising, in direct-to-consumer uh, brands trying to get their products in front of consumers, this audience really gels well with that. So if you look at the average revenue per user right now, you know it's about three dollars. Uh, Twitter's at eight dollars. Facebook's at twenty-four. Their international revenue is minimal. So there's a lot of opportunities for this company if they can execute on them. Uh, uh, for revenue growth, so user growth will slow in the U.S. Uh, because it's it's a niche. But as 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 if it remains a niche and keeps like focusing on its strength and not be Facebook, not be any other social media platform, then this could be a good revenue growth story longer term. Jitendra, I have to wonder. You said that it was a good thing that it's not trying to uh, define itself as a social media company or a search engine, and yet I'm not hearing a message as to what they are. You know, and I. I have to wonder whether that will eventually work against them because people are inevitably going to compare them against social media giants and search engines because people naturally look for something to compare them to. 
the revenue growth aspect of things that would be compared as far as the user growth aspect of things is concerned i mean i it's best that they don't pitch the user growth uh, story uh, much because it will slow uh, and it cannot scale to that level any which ways but as far as they can show that look we can match the profitability of what social media companies do we can match that you know long term double digit revenue growth uh, playing into our segment with what the other social media companies do if they if they stick to that then they would deserve that uh, valuation longer term but the next six months are very risky for this company and there are, there are three reasons behind that the number one reason being how they make money right now so basically you you're seeing that their strong revenue growth in 2018 came with strong growth in spending uh, in, in marketing so basically you know they are not the self-serve platform is very nascent they have to hire people to sort of like sell advertising to fuel large advertisers unlike you know what Google and Facebook are doing with the self-serve platform. Snap is trying to do with the self-serve platform. So because of that scaling issue, you know, there could be some disappointment in terms of how fast they can grow because then it's a function of how fast they can hire, right? So it'll take a year or, or so for the self-serve platform to come up. The second thing is Google de-indexing uh, uh, Pinterest landing pages. So if you can't be part of Google search, uh, then it sort of hurts their user growth. So this happened in 1Q18. Uh, they saw some deceleration in user growth. Because of that, uh, the story continues. Uh, but because the monetization level of the current customer base is so low, uh, even if the user growth slows down a bit, it won't. It should not impact uh, revenue growth. And lastly, the last risk for them is if you look at IPOs, as, as you mentioned, with any uh, most big internet IPOs and, and key internet IPOs over the last decade, we have seen a lot of volatility in the first six months. And that's happening because you know there's a delta between what the private market thinks the value of the companies, what the public market thinks what the value of the companies, and uh, there's also there's this show me phase, if you may, that hey, this is the growth that I'm valuing you at, and can you really deliver? And because of the scaling thing that I talked about, you know, those misses and hits could right. happen. So because of those, uh, those risks need to be kept in mind with uh, with Pinterest. Right. So, you know, one of the things that I think is holding the Lyft stock back, and again, Lyft's about uh, $57 a share right now below its $72 IPO price, is the, you know, the lack of visibility to profitability. Is that something that Pinterest also has as a risk? And should investors be concerned about a path to profitability? Uh, less concerned because the path to profitability is visible over here. Uh, in the other two scenarios, it's it's not visible, and it's visible because you know the end market here is advertising. They are making progress in terms of you know cutting their losses, and we expect them to be on adjusted EBITDA uh, basis profitable this year. On a gap basis, it'll take multiple years based on how the stock-based compensation uh, expense and other growth stories plays out with international expansion and things like that. But on an adjust base, adjusted basis, they should be profitable this year. So longer term, they will try to line up with uh, other social media companies in terms of profitability, but at least there's a path to profitability here that is visible. Uh, and, and one more thing that's sort of different about uh, Pinterest in terms of cost is the usage. So if you look at daily users of any other platform, Pinterest has the lowest frequency of use because people are coming there only when they need to uh, you know, find a, a new product or a service. And because of that, the cloud costs are lower. Right, so it, when, when daily users on Snapchat are posting, sharing, using the platform a lot more uh, for for the activities, the cloud cost would be higher for them. But because of uh, the frequency of use and the purpose of use being different and and lower, uh, the cloud cost would also be lower. So yeah. that helps them, um, you know, uh, from profitability. 
Jatendra Wall, thank you so much for being with us. Jatendra Wall, senior analyst covering the internet and consumer product sectors for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us uh, to talk about that Pinterest IPO. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.